When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— and they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Most Notorious contains adult themes. It is not suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. This is the Most Notorious Podcast, and I am Eric Rivenis. Today we have a story not of murder, but swindle instead. Not just any swindle, but swindle of epic proportions. Perpetuated by one of the greatest flim-flammers and cheats in the history of the 20th century. My guest today is Jeff Mache, a journalist and author who has written for the BBC, The Atlantic, Playboy, and many other magazines. He's the author of Handsome Devil, a book that delves into the life of scam artist extraordinaire Victor Lustig. I appreciate your time. Thank you for joining me. Thank you. So what led you to write a book about Victor Lustig? I just couldn't believe that no one had told Victor Lustig's story before. Uh, he, he must be the last of the Depression era's public enemies to not... Uh, have his story written about in, in the kind of depth that, that I write about. Can you talk about his early life? Where was he born and how did he grow up? Well, there's a lot of mystery surrounding who he really was, but we think that he was born in Hostin, which is now in the Czech Republic. Um, he came to America uh, after the, the Great War uh, to kind of make his fortune, but he was a, he was a, a street hustler, you know, card sharp, uh, he would 
you know, rip people off on the street with sleight of hand games. He was, you know, typical of, of European immigrants at the time. He, he wanted to make his fortune in America. So he grows up on the streets, as you say, learning how to hustle, learning how to scam. Once he's established this pretty much as a career, he decides to move to America. And he eventually falls in with a fellow scammer named Nicky Arnstein. Can you describe how they met and how their relationship developed? Well, they met on on a a huge ship uh, that was on its way to New York. And Lustig was going backward and forward, just ripping off the the first class passengers. You know, they were easy pickings. And on one of those uh, trips, he met Arnstein, who was a, a real pro, you know, a true pro. He knew all the tricks. He made Lustig look like an amateur. And he took Lustig under his wing and taught him the skills of the hustler. Uh, taught him how to uh, go for what they called the big store. So instead of, you know, ripping off for uh, a dollar here or a dollar there, they would play the long game and figure out how to steal hundreds or thousands of dollars. And Arnstein is famously known for being the husband of comedian Fanny Bryce. That's right, yes. And he was played by Omar Sharif in the movie Funny Girl. Yes, he was, yeah. He was... um, a half German Jew, I think, from from New Jersey, um, and he told he told Victor that you've always got to let the sucker suggest the game. So you've he it was a weird technique that made your your victim your mark desperate and over his money. So you really paint a great portrait of Count Victor Lustig in your book, and the word count is in quotation marks, of course. Because he wasn't a real count, he just called himself a count to impress gullible Americans, telling them that he had been separated from his castles in the Balkans by a revolution. He was five foot seven, 139 pounds. He dressed to the nines in the finest of fabrics. He was incredibly charming, fluent in five languages. And when he arrives in New York in 1918, he's dressed in a silk shirt, plaid suit, camel hair, top coat, uh, top hat, carries a cane under his arm, and he's wearing champagne-colored gloves. And he's ready to make his fortune. What are some of the earliest cons that he uses when he first arrives? Well, one of his earliest scams when he arrived in America was called the pocketbook trick. And he would um, find a sucker and together they'd find a wallet or a bunch of uh, money and they'd return it to the rightful owner who would be uh, like a wingman for, for Lustig and they would lure that unfortunate sucker into some kind of horse race and you know the methods varied but it usually ended up with the sucker putting up a bunch of money to get his winnings, and that always turned out to be a bag of old newspapers instead of cash. So he's quite the charmer and definitely a ladies' man, and he plays the field whenever he can. But interestingly, and somewhat counter to his personality, he he falls in love, and with a small-town Midwest girl from Kansas, no less. Can you talk about their courtship? Well, Victor Lustig met a young lady called Roberta Norette 
very early in his uh, American career. And we know from her memoirs that they fell deeply in love very quickly. And that's quite unusual for a con man. And she was quite a stunner, wasn't she? Yes, Roberta was very striking. She had this red hair and, and brown eyes and this white complexion. And she was absolutely stunning. She was everything that that Victor wanted in a woman um she was completely different to you know anyone that he'd ever met before uh, we know that he was really really taken by her and and together they became this wonderful upper class couple dressed in the finest clothes they definitely are kindred spirits in some sense but their relationship ends up being quite tumultuous as well Yes, Victor Lustig's relationship with Roberta was incredibly tempestuous. Uh, We know that Roberta was very hot-headed too. And, of course, this was a relationship really based on lies. And as we know, any relationship really that's based on lies uh, can be be wobbly. And they certainly had, uh, well, I mean, he divorced her twice, or certainly he he married her twice. We We know that much. They eventually have a daughter together, but things are tough for the little girl. Lustig is always moving, constantly crisscrossing the country. uh, Lustig's daughter, Betty, wrote a memoir, and in it she wrote how difficult it was, you know, having a mother and father that were constantly on the run. Uh, You know, her mother wanted to be a a homemaker. Uh, She loved furniture. But, of course, Lustig had to forever be changing his name and changing his address, so their their luggage, their their furniture was always crisscrossing the United States. So he has many girlfriends over the course of his criminal career, but had a special at- attachment to a madam named Billy May Shebel. This is quite a relationship. Yeah, Shebel was quite the character. I, I actually couldn't believe what I was reading when I discovered uh, her backstory, but she was one of... Uh, Pittsburgh's most famous madams. She ran uh, brothels uh, all the way across uh, Philadelphia to New York. Um, She crossed paths with Victor Lustig, who tried to rip her off, and they kind of fell in love and became partners in crime. Pretty interesting. He he attempts to rip her off. She catches on, and it only increases their attraction for each other. I think so. And she was just everything that his wife wasn't. You know, she uh, Shebel was was a crook as well. Um, they She liked the finer things. They had apartments together in New York and Chicago and Beverly Hills. Um, and I think it, by this point, Roberta was just a, a, a small town girl. So he does really well with his early cons, makes a, a bundle of cash, but he really strikes gold with his Romanian money box scam. Can you explain how the Romanian money box works? Well, Lustig didn't invent the, the money box scam because it was we know that it was being used maybe about 100 years before his birth, but it worked like this. The con man would have uh, an antique-looking box that he claimed could duplicate chemically banknotes, and he would, with sleight of hand, convince victims that he could put a hundred dollar bill in the top and after 12 hours a chemical bath would produce two identical bills and he put his own twist on that 
but he was very convincing uh, because we know, well, records state that he ripped off dozens of businessmen for up to 42000 or $100,000 at a time. Lustig one day goes into a bank and he's looking to buy a piece of property adjacent to the bank. Can you tell that story? One of his uh, most original scams was a, a property deal in which he arrived at a small town bank, uh, I think in Springfield, and buys a piece of worthless land uh, for about $50,000. Uh, he hands over bonds for, the, for that amount. Uh, I think he gives more than that amount, and the banker gives him change. But the, the key to the, the scam is that he feigned a heart attack during the, the meeting where the money was held over, he clutched his chest and uh, collapsed. And the banker was obviously very worried that, that this guy was going to die in his office. Uh, but as soon as the, the banker had turned his back, he stole the bonds back, slipped them in his pocket, and was on his way out of town on a fast train before anyone really knew what was going on. And he even has clothes that he's designed, especially to hide all of the cash. Yeah, that, that particular instance, he changed on the train, the fast train out of town. Uh, he slipped out of his fancy uh, suit and, and posh hat and disguised himself as a farmer. Uh, and we know that Lustig was a, a master of disguise. He admitted to carrying a number of outfits in, in his trunk. Uh, he would dress as a bellboy or a porter. And whenever, you know, the shit hit the fan, he would be able to slip out of a hotel and still take his luggage with him, and that was the most important thing. Can you describe his encounter with Thomas Kearns? Yes, his encounter with Thomas Kearns was his first mistake. He was very successful up until he met Thomas Kearns. He went to his house uh, on the east coast of America, and um, in a business deal, he decided to slip upstairs and just steal $16,000 from, from the gentleman's office. It was so unlike Lustig that when I was reading the evidence, it just seemed bizarre. It was it, He didn't use any of his skill or cunning or cons. He just, he just stole the, the money from, from Kearns. And this was part of his downfall because the success of Lustig was that his victims beforehand had always been so embarrassed. Uh, that they'd been ripped off, that often they didn't complain to the police. But with Kearns, he, he'd just been robbed. And so he screamed to the police. And that was really when Lustig first came to the attention of, of law enforcement. So we have an old running American joke about selling swampland in Florida or the Brooklyn Bridge, a con that only the biggest suckers or rubes would fall for. But Lustig was a master at selling ridiculous things. And the one he's most known for has to do with the Eiffel Tower in 1925. That's right. Lustig was always looking for the big con, the big store. And I think he found it in 1925 when he traveled to Paris. He spoke fluent uh, French. He traveled to Paris looking for the, the big money. And he found it in the Eiffel Tower, which he read a small newspaper article saying that the Eiffel Tower wasn't very popular with the French. Not a lot of people know this, but uh, the French design community actually hated the Eiffel Tower. And he decided that he would sell it to scrap metal merchants, uh, which is exactly what he did, according to 
uh, a Secret Service agent who was on his case at the time. It's pretty interesting. He, he was so careful when planning his meeting with these scrap metal dealers. He posed as a representative of the government and knew that these men would expect champagne, but not very much. He'd provide something to eat, but nothing very expensive. I mean, every detail was meticulously planned to create a realistic cover. And just like his old mentor told him, Nicky Arnstein, back on that ship, you have to make the sucker desperate to hand over his cash. And that's what he did. He invited six scrap metal merchants and invited them to make a bid. You know, they were fighting to buy the Eiffel Tower. But as you write in your book, he'd marked one of these men in particular early on to win the bid. And again, there were six at the meeting, but he was specifically looking to take money from one of these guys. Yes, he marked the guy that he thought was perfect uh, to be ripped off. Um, I'm not sure if the gentleman's name that he uses is correct. In in one of the Secret Service agent's memoirs, he's referred to as Andre Poisson, but I couldn't find any record of this guy. Um, I, I suspect that the name was changed by that. A secret service agent but he was uh, Poisson was said to possess new money so he knew that he'd you know risen from peasant stock much like Lustig so he knew that he'd be desperate to to buy this huge uh, sprawling you know piece of scrap metal that would make him rich and once he gets his money he decides to lay low kind of read through the newspapers and just wait to read of news of his scam but the news never comes. Well, Lustig was waiting for um, to celebrate his success with a huge newspaper splash, uh, saying that someone had been ripped off to the tune of, you know, $100,000. But it, de- it never came. And, you know, it was just another example of one of Lustig's victims being so embarrassed to admit that he'd been ripped off that he decided to suffer in silence. So he's operating in America at, at the perfect time. It's the Roaring Twenties, where there is a lot of wealth and plenty of businessmen to fleece. But then the stock market crashes and the Great Depression arrives. How do things change for him? These were terrible times for Victor Lustig because his victims were all bankers and they'd all lost their fortunes. Uh, Lustig was a con man and with no hustles to be made, he really struggled. He earned hardly any money that first year after the crash. And... He turned his attention, he decided to turn his attention to counterfeiting. Now, he already knew that counterfeiting was trouble because he'd been caught before making counterfeit uh, whiskey labels during the prohibition. And he knew that the Secret Service were a force to be reckoned with. So it really was an act, an act of um, desperation uh, that saw him get into counterfeiting banknotes. During these lean years, these early counterfeiting years, he goes to Mexico, but doesn't do well there either. So he heads back to the U.S., but at the border, he encounters a Texas sheriff named Q.R. Miller. I love this story. Can, can you tell it? Yeah. So this is um, during the Depression. Uh, Lustig arrives back at the border of Texas after a failed uh, attempt to con Mexico. And he's met there by a, a very short, angry Texan sheriff, a small town sheriff called uh, uh, called Miller. And uh, well, 
Miller is described in in documents as uh, being a little bit too big for his boots, and he's really obsessed with Lustig, who he has in his prison. And, of course, Lustig gets to work on him and starts telling him all these fantastic stories of brothels in Paris and how much riches he's made in his life, and quickly realises that Sheriff Miller is involved in uh, ripping off the county. He's in charge of the, the tax collecting in the county. And so he decides to rip the sheriff off and offers him uh, part of his money, money-making money deal with his, uh, his money box. And the sheriff falls for it. And Lustig manages to do a deal with the sheriff in exchange for the sale of his money box. He gets his freedom and escapes the prison. But Sheriff Miller didn't appreciate being taken advantage of, and he pretty doggedly tracks down Lustig and confronts him. Yes, Miller tracks down Lustig to, a, I think it's a hotel in Chicago, and pulls a gun. He's going to shoot Lustig. But Lustig decides to get out of it, and he offers the sheriff $50,000 back in compensation, which he gives him in these crisp $100 bills. Of course, they're counterfeit. So the sheriff disappears with these counterfeit notes, goes to live it up for a couple of weeks, boozing, and uh, is arrested for passing counterfeit money. (laughs) And something else that that made me chuckle. Lustig is really quick on his feet and tells Miller, Oh, I didn't cheat you. Your machine (laughs) must be broken. (laughs) Yes, and this has happened to him before. People have come come up to Lustig and said, My, that blasted machine you sold me, it's broken. And Lustig's told them, well, you better buy a new one. <laughs> so this, this is pretty interesting to me. Can you tell the story of Lustig's purported connection to Al Capone? Yes, the, uh, the story goes that um, Lustig turned up at Al Capone's headquarters and convinced him to hand some money over for a business investment. So he disappears for a few months, claims that the uh, the business deal didn't go through. And of course, by this point, Capone wants to know where this European guy is with all his money. Capone's not the kind of guy that you want to uh, mess around with. So Lustig arrives back and is very apologetic and straight up just offers to give Capone his money back and apologizes. And this is so unusual in in that world, in the the Chicago crime world, that Capone's really taken by Lustig and says, well, here's for your honesty, uh, gives him a bunch of cash. And Lustig used that as an example of that he could make a mark out of anyone, even Al Capone. Part of Lustig's decision to return the money had to have been a realization, though, about the person he had scammed. I mean, Al Capone would not have been easy to escape from with all of his connections across the country. Yes. I mean, Lustig just had so much kind of confidence that he would happily try and rip off Al Capone. Uh, You know, he would dance with the Secret Service. But as we know now, these things were all part of his, his downfall. He was perhaps too confident. And if I remember correctly, he later brags to law enforcement about being a member of the Al Capone gang. Yes, when Lustig's arrested in uh, in Europe, he actually tells the, the the arresting officers, "I'm a I'm a member of Al Capone's gang. This is uh, nothing to do with your country. I'm here just siphoning off Mr. Capone's 
uh, ill-gotten gains. You know, he, he even boasts of it. How much of that is true, we don't know. Um, I, I did read in the New York Times uh, on microfilm, it was claimed that the link between Lustig and Capone was likely tenuous at best. So a friendship develops between Lustig and a man named William Watts. This has to do with counterfeiting, and it's a business that becomes incredibly profitable for both of them. William Watts was the number one counterfeiter in the United States at the time, and Lustig knew that. He'd met him on a previous uh, on a previous job counterfeiting whiskey labels. So he and Watts decided to go into business together and create the perfect banknotes, what experts today would call super notes. And experts today have told me that Lustig Watts uh, dollar bills are or were the super notes of their day. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Was, or call the police. Or call the police, like she should have, <laughs> exactly. What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Two Secret Service agents, Peter Rubano, and James Johnson become involved in tracking Lustig down. Can you talk about who they were and the methods they used to eventually find him? Peter Rubano is one of these characters that, as an author, you pray that you come across in documents. He was 
absolutely fantastic. He was arrogant. Uh, he loved the press, loved to see his name and picture in the press, uh, outspoken. Uh, in a way, he and Lustig were kind of two sides of the same coin. Rubano was the son of European immigrants in, in New York. Um, Rubano hated Lustig with a with a rare passion. He'd, he'd been conned by Lustig before. Um, Lustig had used Rubano uh, to come aboard uh, from a ship in New York uh, and had managed to use Rubano to, to get him aboard, uh, you know, on, on uh, dry land. Uh, but Rubano was very, he liked to think of himself as a bit of a crime-fighting celebrity. And as Lustig's reputation grew, Rubano decided that catching Lustig would probably make his career. Tell us about how Lustig is finally caught. Lustig was making his escape uh, in New York. He was driving uh, away from Shebel's brothel and uh, Rubano uh, spots him in a car and the Secret Service and members of the Treasury uh, pull his car over to the side of the street and surround him and Rubano gets the, all the glory of arresting Lustig. It's, you know, a fantastic moment for him. You know, he's able to slap the handcuffs on and drag him uh, into jail. You know, it was, you can only imagine for someone as press hungry as Rubano how happy he was to, to make that arrest. So once Lustig is captured, he tries to make a deal and he offers up Rubano. Lustig hints in interviews with investigators that he was working with the Secret Service uh, to reveal Peter Rubano as a, as a fraud, as, uh, that he was uh, corrupt. Um, so he, Lustig was trying to make a deal uh, with, the, with the agency uh, to try and expose Rubano. How much of that is true, we don't know, but Lustig agreed that he would hand over his counterfeiting plates in exchange for a lesser uh, sentence. But the agency quickly realizes that these are not the plates that are making the, the primo bills. That's right. The plates he hands over are not what they're looking for. And Lustig is carted off to jail. So Lustig makes himself at home <laughs> at the federal detention facility in Manhattan. But three months later, papers are comparing him to Harry Houdini. Can you explain what happens? Well, this is amazing. So this is where you think the story's over. Uh, Rabano has told Lustig, your goose is cooked. And Lustig's in jail in Manhattan in a federal detention center that's widely known to be inescapable. So everyone is baffled when they find Lustig's cell empty. Lustig gone, escaped. And on his pillow, Lustig had left a note uh, a, uh, a extract from Le Miserable, uh, taunting Rubano and the uh, and the Secret Service. So, how exactly does he escape? Over the period of of several months, Lustig had been hiding bedsheets in his mattress, and at night he was ripping them into tiny threads and knitting them together, uh, plaiting them together to make a rope. And uh, on one day in September, he threw the rope out of the window and leapt to his freedom. So Lustig is on the lamb for a number of weeks, hiding out wherever he thinks he might be safe. 
but the Secret Service is hot on his trail and finally catch up with him at the brothel of his old girlfriend, Billy May Shebel, in Pittsburgh. Yeah, and there he gets a, a good night's sleep. And next door, according to a newspaper that I found, uh, one of the chief members of the police was next door being uh, entertained by uh, a young <laughs> a young prostitute. You really couldn't make it up. These kind of things only did happen in the 1930s. And you allude to the fact that he might have been thrown under the bus by the husband of his former wife, Roberta. Yes, Roberta had married and her new husband hated Lustig with, with a passion. Um, didn't even like to hear his name being mentioned. And we gather that Lustig was in contact with Roberta while he was on the run. And it's his daughter's belief that it was her stepfather, Roberta's new husband, that contacted police with Lustig's whereabouts and led to his capture in Pittsburgh. So he's captured and tried. What are some of the, the highlights of the trial? It wasn't a long trial. Uh, Lustig was was a broken man. He was tired. Uh, I think a newspaper wrote that once he was known for his suavity, his continental accent and his perfect poise, they wrote that now he just looked a bit greyer than he'd been before. Uh, he was beaten. Um, they brought Q.R. Miller to court, the, the, the former sheriff. Uh, they brought William Watts to the stand. It really wasn't looking good for Lustig, and I think just 15 minutes into the trial, he interrupted the proceedings and just shouted out, guilty. <laughs> so he goes to Alcatraz, joining guys like Doc Barker, Machine Gun Kelly, and Al Capone. It seems like many of my podcast episodes end <laughs> with a trip to Alcatraz. <laughs> yes, and the reporting of this story ended up in a trip to Alcatraz for me. Uh, I went there and uh, was able to find over 1,300 documents that uh, reported Lustig's life on Devil's Island and a, and a lot of stuff about his criminal career as well. What was life like for him there? It wasn't very nice, was it? It was horrendous. Uh, you know, he uh, was washed down with salt water from a hose uh, the minute he arrived on, on Alcatraz and he had all his cavities searched for uh, keys. And I mean, they knew he was a, a master of escape. Uh, so they were they were very, very tough with him. And he also suffered from uh, respiratory problems. So he found the weather particularly terrible on, on Alcatraz. But their fears of him escaping were not unfounded, were they? He was trying to figure out a way to do it. Absolutely. And this is brand new information in, in the book. Uh, I found uh, transcripts from uh, from Alcatraz of wardens. They actually found strips of bedsheet in his room. Now, we know that he escaped by tearing up strips of bedsheets and making a rope before. We don't know whether wardens put two and two together, uh, but we know that they confiscated that uh, those pieces of bedsheet and locked him in solitary uh, to stop him from doing it again. He spends 11 years at Alcatraz. Is that correct? Yes, just over 11 years. So during that time, everyone deserts him, as people are prone to do when someone they know is in prison, probably. But but his daughter doesn't, does she? C can you talk about his relationship with his daughter? Yes, I found their letters uh, to each other. 
that were really touching. Uh, and I read in Betty's memoir that she took the journey to Alcatraz to go and see her father. You know, and she was only a young girl, a very young girl, about eight years old. Um, but they managed to keep up a, a relationship, writing to each other. Eventually, uh, Betty grows into a young woman and, and has a baby. But she's desperate for her father to be released. You know, she misses him so much. You know, the father that she loved and idolized. And she's with him when he finally passes away. Well, Victor Lustig got very, very ill. And they didn't believe him on Alcatraz because they thought he was faking it. Uh, you know, who, who would trust a con man? Um, eventually, he gets so ill that he's transferred off of Alcatraz to Springfield, which is the big prison uh, medical centre. And his daughter, Betty, is called to meet him. Uh, she's told that he's he's close to dying and she finds him on a, on his deathbed. And in a, in a really sad scene, uh, she has to communicate with him using Morse code because he can no longer speak. And Morse code was something he'd taught her when she was younger. In the past, Victor had taught his daughter uh, Morse code so that he could communicate with her silently. Uh, he would tell her, be quiet now, if she was about to reveal something that would blow his cover. Uh, so on that, on that prison hospital bed, uh, they were able to communicate and he was able to tell her for the last time that he loved her. There are some people now that are convinced that Lustig pulled off the greatest con of his life by faking his own death. Is there any validity to this? There are a lot of Lustigologists out there, uh, people that are obsessed, like I am, with the life of Victor Lustig. And many of them believe that he escaped Alcatraz. Uh, they believe that his uh, death certificate was his last forgery. And I have to say, I, I, I would love that to be true. Um, he was transferred to Springfield from Alcatraz on a train. Uh, that went through Springfield. And if you remember, that was the same uh, route where he uh, dressed himself up as a farmer to escape the police. He'd escaped uh, people on that train before, and he could probably do it again. Uh, do I believe it? There's no evidence to support it. And when you're writing nonfiction, uh, you have to kind of stay within the parameters of what is fact. And his death certificate states that he died in Springfield, uh, uh, medical uh, centre. So uh, I included it in the in the notes at the end of the book, but unfortunately it couldn't be a part of the main story. So why are so many of these people that follow Lustig so convinced of this? Just because of the nature of who he was? Is there some proof that they point to, some evidence? Or is it because this would be a spectacularly appropriate way for a master con artist to drop off the face of the earth. It's more than that. I mean, not only is he capable of it, but there is a lot of mystery surrounding where he's actually buried. Uh, there's a lot of holes in the narrative after his death. Uh, his grave doesn't exist. Uh, his daughter wrote that they tried to move his grave next to Roberta's, but there is a lot of um, ambiguity in some of the documents, let's put it that way. Uh, there's enough for a good conspiracy theory, uh, not enough for proof. Do you think someone today could pull off what Lustig did in the 20s and 30s? I think so. Uh, 
and I wrote about this in the book, that, that there were money scams going on in 2010 that are ripped straight from the Count's playbook, you know, uh, money that's covered in black uh, ink that has to be dipped in a chemical bath. Um, there are scams going on today that are just like uh, Lustig pulled off. Someone tried to sell the Ritz Hotel uh, for hundreds of millions of pounds uh, just a few years ago. So I think it's entirely possible, yes. I enjoyed reading your book because it was nice and compact, a quick, easy, fast-paced read. Thank you. Yeah, it was designed to be read all in one go. Um, his life was so broad and he did so much. Uh, you know, I wanted the reader to, to inhale it, really, in one, in one foul swoop. So how can people get your book? Handsome Devil is available now from Amazon. It's a Kindle single. Uh, it's two ninety nine, and you can buy it from Amazon.com uh, or any Amazon website in your country. And do you have a website if, if people want to contact you directly? Yes, you can see more of my work uh, writing about historical crime at JeffMache.com. Jeff Mache, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. I love the show. So for anyone looking to turn to a career as a bunko artist, <laughs> I'd like to read to you the famous set of instructions known as the Ten Commandments for Con Men. This, by the way, is attributed to, to Victor Lustig. And anyone working in sales <laughs> might actually get some use from these. So here it goes. Be a patient listener. It is this, not fast talking, that gets a con man his coup. Never look bored. Wait for the other person to reveal any political opinions, then agree with them. Let the other person reveal religious views, then have the same ones. Hint at sex talk, but don't follow it up unless the other person shows a strong interest. Never discuss illness unless some special concern is shown. Never pry into a person's personal circumstances. They'll tell you all eventually. Never boast. Just let your importance be quietly obvious. Never be untidy. Never get drunk. <laughs> Words to live by, I guess. This has been the most notorious podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and I hope you have a safe tomorrow. Mysteries at Midnight be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe and others. I'm Christopher. 
and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.